legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, everybody. It's your top of the steel cage bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your hardcore, bleeding, crimson mask, C4 barbed wire match, hardcore champion, Jake Bruiser, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, we're both bruisers today. There's no wizard on the show. We're brawling bruisers. And today we have our special guest with us. I couldn't imagine doing a McFoley episode without Ben Kissel. Ben Kissel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you uh, so much for having me. And I appreciate you thinking of me because, you know, McFoley was my favorite wrestler growing up. And mine as well. And he still is my favorite wrestler. And he's a wonderful man. And I had all of his t shirts. It is like there's so many things about his story. That makes me love him. Everyone loves an underdog story, first of all. Totally. A little train that could fucking, you know, driving out, sleeping in his car to get those training sessions in. Everybody loves a strong character uh, that you can really follow behind, especially in wrestling. It's so important, right? It's very difficult. Also to have somebody that's willing to uh, almost seemingly enjoys these intense amounts of pain pain that he's been put through throughout his entire career and in matches that you know and of course we'll talk about hell in a cell and things like that but matches that you don't some people should not have survived right and he's able to just bounce back and keep going and going and going and then also with this santa claus denouement that we get love at the santa end, claus it's like unbelievable like yep. everything is just so and so see, okay well wait wait here's mm-hmm. the thing you guys are talking about the inspirational figure you guys are talking about the uh you know the the wrestling fanboy who did good and paid his dues and like you know was spoke to like the nerdy audience and like kind of resonated emotionally uh all i've all i learned while researching mcfoley <laughs> is the lengths you have to go <laughs> to make it in show business if you're not good looking yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. If you are not a physical Adonis that will make Vince McMahon make a sculpture of you, if you are not a steroid-juiced, blonde-haired Adonis, uh, you have to physically rip your own kidneys out before anyone will give you the time of day. Yes, basically you have to reenact a scene from the movie Saw every match. Every night of the year for 20 years. Or, and then finally, or, you get the privilege of being thrown off a cage by the greatest Undertaker, of 20, course. 20 or, or conversely, alternate showbiz route, be a good-looking man. That's, that's it. No, that's it. So all three of us better get ready to be thrown off a cage. 
Because we're not going to make it. No, thankfully, uh, Mick Foley is doing DDP yoga, Diamond Dallas Page, mm-hmm. another amazing professional oh, wrestler. Oh, and so many great and stories with DDT as well. DDP, the, yeah. DDP, I'm sorry, the torture that they put him through. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, on the road with him when he's crying because they put the sand in his bed. This Man, is one of my favorite. It's, there was a lot of roast mode going on. <laughs> yeah. And dare I say, they didn't need it. Like, they could have just gone to bed at their uh, Holiday Inn. But uh, DDP yoga has helped Mick uh, start to uh, – could always walk, but he was having more more difficulties than you can even imagine. So he's, he, I think he's doing okay. I listened which to I'm an interview, about. and in, as of 2016, he was on a vegan diet. You know, yeah, take, for he's good. taking good care of himself. I hope yeah, so. I hope so because I mean, he he's no stranger to the con, to the life altering concussions. <laughs> well, that one rec- that a wrestler was received throughout his career that could turn them into a complete psycho. You know, it's very interesting. I had a chance to interview Mick Foley. Yes, uh, and I was talking to him a little bit about his Santa Claus thing. Uh, you know, because that was kind of what the book was about. But he liked me enough to talk about professional wrestling, which I know for a fact professional wrestlers are kind of sick about talking about professional wrestling <laughs> yeah. all the time. It's like if we do an interview, be like, tell me about comedy in New York. Be like, can I blow my brains out? Um, but he was saying, uh, speaking of concussions, the match that he hates the most and the match that he never wants to never bring it up to him if you meet him, he said this is the least artistic wrestling performance he's ever done is the Rock I Quit match. Oh, because ah, he got yes. hit in the face with a chair. About How many times? He got elbowed through a chair. I Multiple believe. times. Yes. And then the Rock handcuffed his arms behind his back, handcuffed his hands behind his back, and if you get a chance to watch the documentary Beyond the Mat, they really go into this match pretty in-depth. Yes, And yes. Um, that match gave him multiple concussions, as you imagine, mm-hmm. because that's a steel chair. And that's the one that he says uh, is absolutely horrible, and he never wants to uh, think about it again. <laughs> However, he did get The Rock over, because at that point, The Rock was in that Roman Reigns kind of gray area of, like, mm-hmm. we're supposed to like him, but we don't really like him. And that solidified Rock it's, as one of the best heels in WWE The history. Rock was still wearing a shirt. If he's still yes, wearing exactly. a shirt, he wasn't over yet. And now, I, w- I would like to throw in here right now, uh, and right here, that we have done an episode, one previous wrestling episode, and that was on The Rock. Um, and obviously, sure. The Rock kind of transcends and goes into the Hollywood career and one of my fears but also one of my wants in doing this episode is to attempt to also maybe convince a lot of our people who are listening to this podcast because they like comic books and they like anime and they like video games uh, to understand like what is so exciting and amazing about both wrestling and about a guy like Mick Foley which they might see that the title of this show and be like oh man fucking wrestling what and it's like how can we get across that this dude is like on a godlike level (laughs) that that he was an incredible Incredible entertainer on the same level as as uh, uh, you know Superman or uh, Goku. I'd yeah, he's like he... the opposite of Superman when it comes to like flying because uh, he's more of a faller. But but yeah. he's like Jesus. He is a god is. who is of the earth. Yes, he yes. is a long-haired hippie that was brutally tortured for our benefit. He will wash yeah. your fucking feet, dude. He'll wash it in a second. Well, yeah, and he did. It... He did better than that for us. <laughs> And his journey starts, like all great nerdy journeys start, with a kind of chubby, awkward kid in Long Island. I Perfect. love that he played lacrosse. Uh, he, Yeah, he was born in Bloomington, Indiana, but this family moved very quickly to East Setauket, 
New York. Um, he played lacrosse. He also wrestled alongside classmate Kevin James. Little known fact. <laughs> Apparently, they were both incredibly mediocre wrestlers. I thought Kevin James was supposed to be good. He I said really he was good in an interview, so that's all I know. <laughs> I read I read some quote when I was doing the research. Like they were both very mediocre and well suited for each other during that time in terms that's of a matchup, which is so funny to think about. Um, and then he ended up attending State University of New York, Cortland, uh, and he famously hitchhiked to Madison Square Garden to see his favorite wrestler Jimmy. Snuka fight in a steel cage match against Don Morocco, and this would convince him that he would like a career in professional wrestling. The amazing thing about this uh, Jimmy Snuka match is you can actually go in, like several wrestling websites have uh, documented this, you can find photos of the match and sitting there with long hair in a plaid like lumberjack shirt is a young Mick Foley losing his goddamn mind right there in the front row. Jimmy Superfly Snuka, he worked in wrestling since the 1970s. He uh, sadly passed away in in 2017. He was credited with introducing the high-flying style of wrestling to the WWE. And Foley has said in uh, different interviews that Snuka's flying body splash from the top of the cage mm-hmm. inspired him to pursue a career in pro wrestling, which is amazing to think about now uh, because we'll get into it later. But, of course, his famous uh, drop from the steel cage himself put him uh, hugely on the map in terms of wrestling as well. Yeah, yep. Foley, yeah, had a front row seat, as you said, is visible. Um, so he starts training. But the training, this whole part, I, I hopefully you can fill in some gaps for me because you actually oh. scrammed. Have I a nice a- day. Mick Foley. Oh, but by the way, <laughs> but one of the best autobiographies I've ever read, Have a Nice Day uh, by Mick Foley. A tale it's of blood, in- sweat, and sweat socks. Blood you guys, and sweat socks. You yeah. guys know that story, right? Which were, they were like, okay, so you're gonna get, you're gonna have a book with the WWF at the time, and a lot of people, obviously, professional wrestlers, release books, and he's like, oh, okay, thanks, guys, and then he ended up writing half of the book, and he's like, here's what I've worked on so far, and then they're like, uh, no, Mick, um, we have ghostwriters, yeah, and then he's like, oh, I didn't know that, man, can you just, can you just read it and tell me if it's okay, okay, and it's one of the best autobiographies I have ever it's read so as well, good. and by the way, you're leaving out the fact that he wrote it longhand, yes. Without- Without a typewriter. Without a typewriter. No, you just did it on the planes and whenever the hell he could. And it is 800 pages, that longhand manuscript that he wrote. It was so – there was a certain innocence about the way that he went about his life and his career in professional wrestling that just made him such a lovable human being. Yes. And he's never lost that lovability. Every story I've heard is nothing but positive. And yet, while being lovable, he's also played a phenomenal heel to the point where he was scared to, like, go in front of audiences during his time in the ECW again. We'll get to this in a little bit because of how much he was making them hate him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and dude, you pissed off those Philly crowds. Like yeah. heels in ECW, that you actually really were at a massive risk of you're, physical danger. You're begging for a D battery for heading to your eyes. <laughs> oh, eye absolutely. Socket. And now, of course, he's Santa Claus. And if he showed up like that, they'd definitely peg him with some of those. Uh, oh, so one of the stories from the book that really stuck with me because it just, it's so fucking real, it's so is uh, at Cortland College, a uh, SUNY college. Uh, he was, a, again, a shy kid, uh, awkward, wrestling fan, and uh, at one, at a party, he took his, like, sweetheart home, uh, the girl he had a crush on, and in her drunken haze, uh, he just very politely asked for a kiss goodnight, again, gentlemen, uh, and she, like, looked at him lovey-dovey and said, sure, Frank, uh, his name is Mick. <laughs> right. <laughs> This inspired him to create a uh, series of 
pouty wrestling uh, videos called The Story of Frank Foley because it sent him on a months-long depression rage spiral. And he got famous in the dorms for doing these high-flying moves off of his, like, you know, dorm room bunk beds. Mm, yeah. Uh, he had also made uh, the a Dude Love movie, like uh, yes. a backyard wrestling kind of... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of those movies that you make when you're a goofy kid on 8mm film uh, there's a graphic uh, gay rape scene uh, played for laughs uh, again <laughs> it was the 80s we didn't know any better <laughs> Uh, but like it's it's that level of showmanship and that like kind of sub he literally says in the book I did what I always did when I felt emotional pain I fixed it by turning it into physical pain yeah <laughs> oh, and he inspired us to do backyard wrestling we did it for years great stuff out there I don't think we have the footage anymore but it was awesome <laughs> do you remember any any stunts that you did during that time well, man, we used to do all the moves I would bring my Thunderbird back there we'd do pile drivers <laughs> on him and stuff like that one time I DDT'd my friend Pete and I, w- I forgot that you're supposed to uh, not have their head hit the ground that's when you, the whole and then you're because you can give them a, what you call paralyzation <laughs> right you can paralyze them that's the um, but part. so there was a couple of mistakes that we've made in our backyard there did you light up, anything on awesome. fire that wasn't supposed to be on fire we did bats and stuff like that <laughs> we got pretty hardcore with it but not not ecw hardcore you know we were, we were still mainstream wwf guys but it was very painful <laughs> Uh, so we're in college. He's now uh, training with Dominic Danucci's wrestling school in Freedom, Pennsylvania. He wrestled in uh, Dominic Danucci wrestled in the 1970s. He opened up a school there where he trained Mick as well as some other big hitters like Shane Douglas and Brian Hildebrand. Um, and Mick was driving several hours uh, from college. Uh, I believe this was mostly on weekends, right? It was he a 27-hour drive Jesus, straight. That is uh, insane. He could not afford to stay at a hotel and would like sleep in his car every other on like off nights to like help maintain the costs. Uh, the uh, school usually costs like a hundred dollars a week, and uh, Danucci like saw the promise in this young man and charged him twenty five. Mm. Um, he introduced uh, Danucci introduced Mick to the class by uh, saying he's okay, but man, can he take a lot of bumps? <laughs> thus inspiring all of his classmates to just wreck him on a daily basis. <laughs> and he right. would he would go on to get a job uh, or to work as a jobber, which is essentially the the, the loser of a match. Um, oh, there's like a really funny word for that, like extrapolary talent or something. I forgot it. There's like <laughs> yeah. a very, in the WWE lang- lingo, the jobber title has, is very technical. Oh man, and good jobbers. I mean, that's a skill set in, his, in its own right. There's a guy, Ellsworth, today who's a good jobber who was just fired from SmackDown, but I think he'll be back to defend Carmella's uh, honor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, like Billy Horowitz or Barry Horowitz. Like, there are some classic, classic Where, where you see them, you just can't wait for them to lose. Yeah, they're, they're just so lose. good at it. Yeah, yeah they're great so at it. So it's this weird thing that we think of getting into the WWF or WWE now uh, as this, like, long journey that that's the peak. But, like, technically his first big gig was for a WWF show. And, I mean, he was getting his ass kicked during his first uh, uh, job as a jobber. He was clotheslined so hard by the Dynamite Kid that he could not eat solid food for weeks. Weeks. Really? Yes. It was uh, an intense uh, beginning for, for Mick. It was never not th- just completely balls to the wall. But don't worry. He, Mick, uh, Mick, you know, kind of emerged in a daze, went backstage, opened the door to both British Bulldogs dressing room and said, hey, man, 
thanks for a great match. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, it's an interesting world wrestling at this time because now we all just have WWE pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I got into wrestling, there was WCW, WWF, and ECW for those hardcore kids. Um, it, it, but back back in the day, it was territorial. He joined the Memphis-based Continental Wrestling Association, but you were either working out of Memphis, he would go on to work for the Texas-based World Class Championship Wrestling, WCCW. I mean, it's almost like as if each state had mm-hmm. their own wrestling mm-hmm. commission, and, and so yeah. it was much more spread out, much more like segregated. This is before Vince sort of like blobbed his way <laughs> through just purchasing everything. Vince McMahon, uh, uh, the owner of uh, WWE, and also um, kind of a notorious like real life heel, which kind of works out very well for uh, wrestling in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of things said about him on both sides of the table. I like the story where he, they talk about how he didn't know what a burrito was. Really, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, Vince is a Vince is an inter- uh, interesting character. I know uh, a pretty big uh, female wrestler right now. Uh, my roommate is good friends with her, and what Vince yes. does, he watches every match from uh, just right outside the entrance slash exit, and every time the wrestlers come out, he critiques their matches immediately, uh. and he is really in the ear of the refs, and he has been known. Obviously, I talk about the Montreal Screwjob for the last podcast mm. on the Left Live shows. That was where he really uh, made himself a villain and then just kind of leaned in, and that's where the character Mr. McMahon came from. But he is uh, very, very difficult to work with. And the, the regimen that he forces his wrestlers through, Triple H, of course, one, someone who's been able to, to kind of live up to all of the um, uh, requirements that Vince wants on his wrestlers, it's almost impossible to do. So these, these folks are really phenomenal. Yeah, it's, I, it's unbelievable. Uh, in the book, uh, I believe uh, Mick Foley talks about how uh, under, the, uh, under the name Cactus Jack, uh, a entire gimmick that he literally like just made up on the spot yeah, thanks he to was... a uh, it was a tabletop fantasy wrestling game he had played with his dad. Ah. His dad's name is Jack, and uh, his dad's character was Cactus Jack. Uh, he was like, oh, Cactus Jack from uh, Indiana. And like the ringside announcer is like, there aren't any cactuses in Indiana. Uh, you're from Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, it makes a lot of sense because um, he teamed up with Gary Young and uh, became a part of the stud stable at that time. Um, that was uh, originally formed in the early 80s by the original Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. But the one with Cactus Jack was run by Ron's brother, Robert. Um, and he's wrestling around with them. He's uh, He ends up going to the Texas-based World Class Championship Wrestling, as I mentioned earlier. And he starts wrestling uh, in Skandor Akbar's stable, uh, which uh, Skandor Akbar translates to Alexander the Great. He was uh, another big guy in, the, in that uh, federation. Essentially, this is where it gets really convoluted. I'm trying to kind of breeze through this and yeah. pick out the most important things. But essentially, he just bounces from... Federation to Federation, just territory to territory, wrestling with uh, different people. Jerry Lawler was a big one at the CWA. He would then briefly join Herb Abrams' Universal Wrestling Federation, and then he uh, leaves it for the Tri-State Wrestling, which would actually later become ECW, and he starts to gain Mm. notoriety from the photos that went out after wrestling three matches in one night for uh, uh, Universal Wrestling Federation. It was a Falls Count Anywhere match, which essentially means you can pin your opponent outside of the ring. You can... you can Anywhere in the anywhere. rafters, anywhere you want to do it. Yep, yeah. yeah, which means that match is going to go wherever. And then he was in a stretcher match and then a steel cage match. And literally, I mean, 
to wrestle in three hardcore matches like that in one night is yeah. incredible and incredibly difficult. And so photos really started to get around about that. And so on September 5th, 1991, Cactus Jack debuts as a heel uh, and attacks Sting in the WCW. And he fought Sting in a false count everywhere match at Beach Blast in 1992. Um, and he actually felt that this was uh, his best match that he ever worked for many years. And he started starts to get a lot more comfortable with the character. He's becoming more boisterous. He's becoming, you know, he's like... Bang, bang! Yeah, bang, bang, laughing hysterically, shrieking into the air while choking his opponents and yelling his signature catchphrase. I mean, how would you best describe Cactus Jack? By the way, uh, just a little precursor, because I'm trying to also think towards the people who don't necessarily know who Mick Foley is. He wrestled under multiple personas, which was yeah. really kind of a weird thing. I felt like... I, was, he won the Tag Team Championships as Dude Love, Cactus Jack, and Mankind, yeah. <laughs> which is phenomenal i liked how during a royal rumble he got eliminated once as yes that is so incredible and really while all this blabbering i'm doing about the different federations and joining wcw is really just trying to get towards the big rivalry he had with the fucking epic awesome big van vader Dude, Vader, R.I.P., maybe yeah. the best big man, best uh, athletic big man uh, maybe to ever wrestle. I mean, the guy doing the ba the Vader salt was no joke, and evidently uh, he was one of the hardest punchers uh, in the WWE. Like, he was very stiff is what they would call that it. That is the term. And yep. he would just brutalize people. <laughs> so naturally, uh, they put him with Mick Foley. Perfect fit for Mick, and they uh, had a great chemistry. They really just they ripped did. it open together. Hey, can we talk about a fun match they had in, say, Germany? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, sure, but even before that, the matches before the match in Germany, which we'll get to what happened there, that was in WCW as well, and that's where uh, it was Harley Race, I think, that was booking all of this stuff at the time. A yeah, who's Harley wrestler. Race? Yeah. He's, a, he's a legend. Right. A total I saw, legend. I saw that name appear over and over and over again, and yeah. I've heard it so many times. He was just one of the first champions, and uh, he was one of the first real big celebrities in, w, in, in professional wrestling history. So there was one match where uh, Mick Foley just gets brutalized by Vader, ends up, I believe, getting counted out, and then the second match, Harley, Ra uh, Harley Race is like, let's remove all the padding from ringside. And and then what happened was Vader was like, this is a good opportunity for me to make myself look really strong and to make Mick look like he's indestructible. He powerbombed Mick Foley on straight concrete. Mick Foley said he went unconscious and he lost all feeling in his left foot. Yes. So lost. that was the second match. Um, so I don't know. Like, was like, where do you go from there? Uh, you go to Germany. You go where to they're that. truly sadistic. So... Uh, Vader and Mick Foley are at, I think it's even an exhibition match technically it's not even aired on TV um, oh my I didn't realize that That's and hilarious. so it's a foreign crew and uh, one of Mick Foley's favorite kind of maneuvers he gets into it a lot is uh, a hangman where yes. you kind of get twisted between the ropes Oof. and you're like getting choked out and trapped by and the ropes. I had to. I trained to be a professional wrestler for six months above Skip's bowling alley Hell in yeah. a real wrestling ring. <laughs> and uh, the first time I hit the ropes, I said, "Oh, that's that's those are ropes. And, and <laughs> like they're not like they're, they're not rubber bands. They, yeah, they like look actual like ropes, bands. and they just kind of put tape over them. And, and it hurts so bad. And to these be in are those ropes. so much more intense. These are actual elevator cables. <laughs> these are elevator yes, cables that were pulled oh, way. To, they, so the not only are they not, yeah. way, are they worse than normal, but then on top of that, they tightened them way too tight, leave way too it, much tighter than normally should have. Leave it to the Germans. So Mick <laughs> Foley gets cables. tangled up in these things, and the, he can, literally cannot get out. He is 
physically trapped getting choked alive on stage or yes. on in, in the ring. Yeah. And through sheer force of will, just finally crams his head through and like pops himself out, leaving giant gashes on the back of his ears. They yes. split his ears yeah. essentially in two. And Vader, of course, notoriously grabs one of the ears and just rips it off. And now, tosses it to the side. A thing that he denied for many years, but later after watching the tape, uh, he had to uh, confess up to. It's so gruesome when you watch the video. <laughs> he because throws it to the ground. The ref picks it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys, speaking of toughness, and obviously we're going to focus on Mick, but there's also a great clip of Big Big Van Vader. He pops his eyeball out of socket. Yeah. Yes. And they just keep on wrestling. So these guys are both very tough. But yes. Very obviously tough. Mick is in a league of his own. When but it comes I'm glad to that. we're giving Big Van Vader his due because he goddamn deserves it. He's yes. a ph- he's a phenom for sure. Uh, it's it was a it was a big kind of uh, slap in the face that he wasn't inducted into the Hall of Fame. He should yes, have been. Absolutely. Yeah, that especially needs to be yeah. mentioned because he his failing health was known for a very long time. Very Nick Foley was very uh, vocal about and this. Said they put like Kid Rock in there, yeah. so it was just very upset. Um, not that I don't love Kid Rock, but still. So Mick Foley has uh, tons of injuries with WCW. He gets uh, power bombed on the concrete, yep. they, and like he's like, "Oh, this is great. This is like a big redemption arc." Because if there's one thing Mick Foley truly believes is that he's not getting injured because he hates himself. Uh, maybe it's a little bit that, and maybe it's a lot that <laughs> he's getting injured because that's where he sees value. That's where he sees the drama that he can bring to the whatever. Uh, right. outfit he's working Foley for. Foley was scheduled what? to win the tag team title, by the way, with Kevin Sullivan in Slamboree in 1994, but he had to choose between reattaching his ear or wrestling in the pay-per-view and winning the titles. He chose to wrestle. Naturally, he did. <laughs> and he, he tells a funny story on the Stone Cold podcast about how he called his wife after the match in Germany. He's like, honey, I got good news and I got bad news. <laughs> the good news is a uh, hell of a match. I won, I think you won the match, right? I don't remember. I believe. Yes, he did. He did win. The good news is I won the match. Bad news is I lost half of my ear, honey. (laughs) And then she's like, what was that? What was that? And this is like they were just dating at the time. And she's like, I sent you to Germany as a complete. And then you're coming across. And then you're coming home. Losing your entire left ear. Uh, All two right. thirds of the ear. It's <laughs> two, it two was basically the entire left ear. I think ear. he's got a lobe. I think he's, he's got, still got a yeah. lobe. <laughs> if you look, I didn't want to look too hard because oh you can see pictures. But, but like, I'll I think tell he's you, still got a lobe. Also, it is so funny. His voice is just so hilarious because he's telling. I was yeah, about to that, say. I go up to the top of the rug, whatever it is. That's going. like a very accurate impression of yeah. Mick Foley's voice, by the way. So if you could just imagine this like fucking monster in the ring that just gets destroyed. And then he just has this soft, sweet. Oh. Oh my god! Way of speaking, and it's so funny, and it really works out for him later with the mankind Mister Sacco character that we'll we'll get oh, to. Totally. So, but he's, again, he's getting destroyed, yeah. and uh, for in at these on these WCW matches, and the uh, management at the time keeps shifting. Uh, right. You know, Turner's kind of metal, or you know, Turner's he talks about how he felt like the writers really botched his Van Vader uh, rivalry, right. really fucked up. He was getting very, um, just very aggravated with with everything over there. Also, they started though, at the a same hokey time, thing where, like, in order to recover, they needed like to give him like kind of a story to explain what was happening, and they did like these hokey segments where he just had amnesia, like it was a bad uh, soap opera. So, so right. yeah, they he he starts to look towards ECW, which perfect timing. They're really kind of becoming more popular. Popular with their hardcore style, um, well, and and he goes yep. to them. ECW for those that don't remember ECW, yeah. I used to go to Hollywood Video, and the there was a guy who worked there. He was in his thirties, and I was maybe fourteen. And I think we were two good of friends. Uh, in hindsight, 
Uh, no, he was a very nice man. But ECW, those uh, tapes were right by the uh, pornography mm-hmm. section. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's and where the, they like, were. So you had to go in the back. Faces of death. Faces and- of death. And that's how extreme <laughs> these matches were. And I'll never forget the first time I bought one of the VHSs and I put it in. And I was just like, uh, I mean, it was it was life-changing yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, bet. What they would do, Sabu. Uh, Tommy Dreamer, all these dudes, man. I mean, they were murdering themselves uh, for our entertainment. Yeah, and and uh, it was it was really kind of wild. I remember I was like scared of ECW. I feel like yeah. back in those days, I was like a little NWO boy. You know, I had my T-shirts and stuff, and I was super into that, like no. the Wolf Pack and all that kind of stuff. And that yeah. was, I was like, I saw what ECW was doing. I was like, ooh, that's like. The real shit. I can't even touch that well, shit. An interesting conspiracy theory. Obviously, Paul Heyman is the man uh, behind ECW. Vince McMahon evidently was financing it the entire time. Ah, this is a, this is a theory. That's amazing. And it was being more used as a farm league, and Vince was still making a little bit of money off of ECW even before he bought it. But Paul Heyman, funny enough, they were so broke that every match they would tape, uh, he would tape over them with other. So he would tape over matches with their new matches to watch them and stuff like that. So ECW, when the WWE bought them, they got the WWE Network. They wanted to get all the footage that they possibly could, so they put something on Craigslist where it's like. If you have old ECW tapes, send them our way and we'll give you two free tickets because Paul Heyman ruined all of the majority of them because they were so broke you wouldn't buy new VHS tapes. I mean, maybe they were Betamax. Those things were more maybe. pricey. Maybe. No, but, but it was just, it was a working class. They yeah. all That's lived in the same, they was. all lived yeah. in his mom's house. It was literally a hippie commune dedicated to the blood god. So we've got, phenomenal. we've got Cactus Jack, and I'm glad you mentioned Sabu. He's He, he becomes uh, famously to, to uh, feud with him, and then later uh, Sandman. Um, and he sees one night uh, during, uh, during an event, he sees a fan holding up a sign that says, Kane Dewey on it and this is a reference to Foley's real life son so Foley being as smart as he is and this is kind of one of the first moments you see this and I feel like he does this time and time again which is what what made me love him when I did finally get into what WWF was doing with Mankind and everything he was so smart at bending graying out the fourth wall Mm -hmm. oh yeah he was really really brilliant at that like he would he would just find ways because everybody knows it's a show and everybody knows it's, you know, quote unquote fake, whatever your version of whatever word it is to describe, you know, it's entertainment. Uh, but he did such a good job of really like manipulating that line. And, and right here he starts to manipulate it and, and he sees the sign and he probably was upset by it. But at the same time, he realized there was a gimmick there where he could start criticizing hardcore wrestling, uh, seeking to renounce his status as a hardcore wrestling icon. Um, and, uh, uh, started getting into like using very technical slow wrestling as a way to punish the audience. And he starts to learn. He's like, I can do a heel turn here where I actually start to criticize hardcore and you know because that's all right. these people want is blood and fucking this sweat on the maybe floor one of the yes. most brilliant heel turns in the history of heel turns because in the land of the hardcore how do you like be the bad guy through just like boring quote-unquote right? fundamentals right. wrestling yeah and one thing that paul Heyman uh, was amazing at was the letting the wrestlers express their real selves if you look at stone cold steve austin when he was canned uh he was the hollywood blondes in wcw oh, about yeah. stunning stunning steve stunning austin with steve the hollywood austin. blondes with pillman r.i.p um He's from Texas. We can't and they say never changed. They never changed their accents. But he's like, I guess we're from Hollywood. But you can't we, keep saying R.I.P. They're, all these wrestlers are dead. All Stone are Cold dead. or Mick. But yes, I, that would be. There's a lot of R.I.P.s in this episode, unfortunately. But they did that same thing with him. 
Uh, he was injured, so he couldn't wrestle. Heyman was like, yo, bro, cut us some promos and find your voice. And then, of course, he did, and then Vince bought, brought him to the WWF at the time. Made him a silent character with Ted DiBiase and the ringmaster, kind of throwing away all of that <laughs> great um, work that he had been doing, honing his voice. But Mick did the exact same thing. Without ECW, that's where they don't get a lot of credit. Yeah, extremely violent. The most violent matches I've ever seen, other than uh, some of the Japanese matches. But they also really did work on characters very, very well. Uh, he would he would praise the WWF and the WCW on ECW shows with rumors that he was going to the WWF. He recounts in Have a Nice Day a story where he uh, asked an ECW roadie to sell t-shirts for him uh, at an event held in Queens, New York. And um, the roadie came back after being spat upon <laughs> numerous times by angry fans who made him fear for his life. Good. Great. That's a roadie's <laughs> that job. Is, that's that a is roadie's a he- job. That is a heel. Like, yeah. Like, literally getting spat on trying to sell fucking t-shirts. It's an ECW heel, that's for sure. And and they would even start chanting, you sold out, Adam, and all this kind of stuff. And he would end up uh, wrestling his last match for the ECW against Whipwreck on March 9th, 1996. And he was really kind of not looking forward to it because the fans had just reached a fever pitch of their hatred for him. But while he was wrestling, they started chanting, please don't go, instead of you sold out. And they all like gave him a standing ovation at the end. And uh, after the match, Foley told the audience that their reaction made everything worthwhile and made his exit by dancing with Stevie Richards and the Big Blue Meanie to Frank Sinatra's song, New York, New York. <laughs> That's so funny. And Foley said that, that that exit was his favorite moment in wrestling. I'm going to say this, though. He said that multiple times about different moments in wrestling. He's yeah. like, yeah. that is my favorite moment well, that maybe, I've ever <laughs> uh, Maybe in, as far as ECW goes, if you want like a comparison, like, what's the WWF like compared to ECW? Uh, Steven Richards, he was their sexy boy. Uh, he was their Shawn Michaels, and he wore a little crop top, and he like did not have the body that Shawn Michaels had. And the big blue meanie was just a hoss, just a I, I mean, just fine wrestler. But that was that was the difference between that product and WWF. Yes, and uh, funnily enough, it would really be. That would be the future, I feel like, for a long time. The, the ECW is essentially the precursor to the Attitude Era that everyone remembers so oh, absolutely. fondly. You know? I mean, no, they, they kind of opened the doors for that. Yeah, WWF took about maybe 30% of ECW energy and aggression for the Attitude Era. Um, so now let's go to Japan, guys. Let's Ooh. take a little f- flight to Japan. I'm just gonna say, we? if you're Mick Foley, stop going overseas <laughs> because what you're about to hear is like absolutely brutal. Terry Funk is involved and all that. Here's what? the thing, though. Back in America, he w- I looked up the term. He was just enhancement talent for WWF. Back in America, he was just some crying guy in a plaid shirt. In Japan, yeah. he was Kakutis Jaku, King of the Death Match. Very, yes. Vince makes you work for it, that's for sure. Yes, he starts working for the International Wrestling Association of Japan, or IWA Japan, and was nicknamed the Tsunami Stopper. And he was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he was that's in, amazing. IWA puts together a, a King of the Deathmatch tournament. <sighs> now, each round had a different, completely nightmarish gimmick. Yeah. Uh, for Mick Foley, the first round was a barbed wire baseball bat thumbtack deathmatch. Imagine. The, Imagine like having ten thousand thumbtacks spilled on a mat and getting body slammed directly onto them. Yes, and you know these Japanese matches were way intense. I used to get again from the Hollywood Video Store the guy who used to purchase them for me specifically. They and the I'd Japanese go back. stuff was behind the ECW. It, it was really like was. It was behind to, the porn. It was <laughs> no, that was in the dumpster. Like you had to go scourge like you were a raccoon or something. There was one match that I remember, a piranhas match, where the the uh, loser was dipped. 
dumped into a vat of piranha. Jesus. And then at the end of the match, they were he was only in there for like maybe three or four seconds. It seemed even less than that, maybe. And then as a kid, I was like, oh, man, he should have been in there longer. And now I'm 37, and I'm like, why did you do that? Like, who who sanctioned the piranha match? Because that's a horrible idea. <laughs> the, uh, the second round for Mick Foley was a barbed wire board bed of nails match. Oh, my God. These matches, if you haven't watched them, I think they're on YouTube. I'm sure they're probably on LiveLeak, no, as the, a matter of fact. You know fact. what it is? Uh, YouTube blocks them because, like, whatever rights management, you can get them all on daily motion. Okay. <laughs> And the final round against Terry Funk, who Ben just mentioned, who will become... Hold on, put a pin on this. Terry Funk, one Terry of the Funk, legends one of, yeah, of oh wrestling. Uh, kind of the precursor to kind of the entirety of the ECW Mick Foley, just putting your body on the line yeah. uh, archetype. Uh, at this point, uh, he is 20 years older than Mick Foley. He is a living legend in Japan. Yep. And, uh, you know, this is... It's, his story is covered again in Beyond the Mat documentary. Yes. And if you... I, I And I can't... And I know Jake texted me furiously yesterday, <laughs> last night, just like blown away by Beyond the Mat. Oh, I, it's such a great doc. It was so funny because Jake was like, have you seen this Beyond on the mat movie i'm like dude i saw beyond the mat in the movie theater the weekend it came out yeah dude. Uh, back in charlotte north carolina like in fucking high school or whatever it was it blew my fucking mind it, it was incredible it is one of the greatest wrestling documentaries of all time everyone should see it uh, you it have to see it it covers terry funk mankind and who are like the main main ones terry funk mankind uh, or terry Mick funk, Foley. mankind uh you know i Wasn't think there a third one i guess they kind of bounce around yeah right? they it's bounce around. around jake the snake roberts jake and it's the fucking snake. Depressing. It's the most Jake depressing the thing ever. Oh my god! It is also, the saddest thing. someone who a Diamond Dallas Page has saved his life. Jake wow. the Snake, not R.I.P., still alive. That wow. is a total miracle. It's unbelievable. And also, I did. Yeah, Terry Funk, also still alive, not uh, not R.I.P., <laughs> which is also a miracle. Yes, yeah. incredible miracle. Uh, so this match, the fi- is final round, the final round against Terry Funk <sighs> was a barbed wire rope. Barbed wire, uh, uh, I believe barbed wire rope means the ring actual ropes for barbed wire. And uh, uh, C4 explosive. Yeah. Time bomb death match. Well, there were individual, so there were these large wooden boards placed, uh, I think there was like one in the center and one in each corner that were had like pressure sensitive like triggers on them that would like unleash, they said it was C4, but you know, it was fireworks still, you can blow your hand off if you oh, yeah. the firework wrong uh and the gimmick was that within 10 minutes the entire ring would explode <laughs> right and so these two guys are having an incredibly physical match uh mick foley uh there's a, actually you can find a clip that was breathtaking it's mick foley reading from his audiobook doing kind of a play-by-play of the match while you watch the footage of it yeah uh he's like Try you know the crowd isn't that into it and he's trying to like kind of hype it up he goes for like he wants to bust through the barbed wire and so he just flings himself into it uh and said he just cuts his shit up and it looks awful uh terry uh terry is i keep wanting to say terry gross very different terry very different terry's <laughs> yes two different although terrors. what they were doing was gross so yeah. it's, it's all coming together uh is also incredibly busted up and yep. getting even more busted up. They start flinging each other onto the C4 and like uh, first Terry Funk just takes point blank on his back. The second one, Mick Foley miraculously kind of rolls over and in the split second it takes to like for the detonation to go up, he dodges it. The third one just completely obliterates the right side of his body, like chars his flesh mm-hmm. yep. and it's de- and. Uh, it's time for the big finale. Terry is like lying in the middle of the ring. Is he 
he's actually injured and like it's time for the ring to blow up and like what literally six Roman candles go off. It is the most <laughs> undramatic thing in the world. And the crowd starts booing. They feel ripped what? off. It's totally crazy. In a panic, you know, meanwhile, this is extreme wrestling. They've been blading like uh, um, Mick Foley's face is, they call it the crimson mask. Yeah, he, was. <laughs> he is covered in blood. It's like a solid red mask. In a panic, just grabs a uh, ladder and starts wailing on Terry. He starts climbing it, hoping that Terry will take the clue to like drag him down. They're just these two brutalized <laughs> men, already injured, just struggling to come up with a big like finish for this match. And like finally, uh, you know, uh, Mick gets the pin, and it's just like just silence like nobody like is having fun <laughs> it's so unbelievably brutal and mick tells a funny story about the next he just got on a plane and went home <laughs> he got 300 dollars for yeah. that matt for that entire night by and the then way. he says uh i'm sitting on the plane and i realize i should probably seek medical attention <laughs> and then he's like he's like i went home and I, w I was talking to my wife and then she said mick mick what smells like burning? And then he took. I took off my shirt. It was me. Yeah. I mean, his whole body was totally fucked, and he Jesus. just got on a plane. And it, I mean, he really could have just died because he lost huge amounts of skin. Of course, he was just sitting there. Of course. So, 1996, Foley signs a contract with WWF, and a new character starts to be get starts to get worked on uh they've shown several designs for a new character and there's this man with a leather mask and chains uh however wwf said that it was too dark so they only left the leather mask and he's finding this new gimmick it's a mentally deranged schizophrenic who's always squealing even throughout his matches shrieking mommy um, speaking to his pet rat named George, which I love. I forgot about the pet rat. Yeah. Right? He's he a proto-Sacco. Because we're this before yeah. pre-Sacco. And this oh, is yeah. actually right. like pre-comedy. And I want to, maybe this is kind of where we'll, I want to just sidle this in. I, I miss this about the wrestling during that time, during especially Mick Foley's reign as Mankind. Um, but the way, you know, WWF, Raw is War, those oh, years, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock. It was so funny. The comedy was so great to me. And um, I looking back at the old footage of, yeah. and it wasn't like gut-busting hilarious or whatever. It wasn't like, you know, brilliant humor or whatever. But it was just so weird and funny. And I think it was because it was so weird. They let them just do really strange there stuff. There was an element of the fantastical. Like, these characters were still allowed to be a little bit superhuman. Yes. I think that's why for so long The Undertaker was so beloved, like, in oh, the modern yeah. age. Because yeah. he was, like, this, like, callback to a time when, like, the guy guys in the ring could be undead yeah, wizards. Yeah, he's they're burying each other alive and they're trying to like get an urn to win the match. Oh, yeah, you know it's what awesome. I mean? uh, the, <laughs> it's like it rules. Funny uh one story uh from the book is uh uh the original name of the character was Mason the Mutilator because they wanted uh cuz for a while people kept trying to give uh Mick Foley the name of Manson. Yeah, that was Cactus that, Jack Manson. I forgot to mention this. Yes, he was yeah. wrestling under Cactus Jack Manson because um, he has that Manson energy. Early right, on, right. and this made him very uncomfortable. So he actually, I think he Long didn't like that Long-haired, hippie, soft-spoken, deep undercurrent of violence raging right. beneath the surface. It fit. Mm -hmm. I but mean, you know, I don't. it's not a compliment, but fuck, it fit. When yeah. he debuted, Mark Calloway, a.k.a. The Undertaker, um, he put him over. 
Like, and he was yeah. like totally invested. Undertaker is uh, known throughout the WWE industry as, or professional wrestling, as one of the greatest guys to put somebody over. He's put a, a lot of folks over. Um, and so, it w- if it wasn't for Undertaker, I don't know if mankind would have been as amazing as mankind was. You know hmm. what? For the, for the people that actually haven't been just soaked in wrestling lore for their entire childhoods, uh, what did, like can you talk about for a second what it means to get someone over? What does that you know, like these, entail? Like when when Mick Foley talks about like winning championships, he equates it to like winning an Oscar. Like it is a very competitive business. Yeah, and there are people who are just like I'm not going to lose to that idiot. I'm I'm X. You know, I'm I'm Shawn Michaels or something like that, or I'm Bret Hart. If you go back to the Montreal Screwjob, Bret Hart did not want to put Shawn Michaels over, and that's why that entire fiasco happened. So it really is a compliment. Um, and if, uh, a compliment of mutual respect, not easy to do. So if the taker, if taker lets you win a match or just puts on a hell of a match with you, I think taker tended to win most of those matches <laughs> unless a disqualification or something like that, um, occurred. Because the point it's of a- not easy to do though. It's not easy to get someone like yeah. that, that established and that much. Cause undertaker was already a God and, in wrestling. And this is why, where the like wrestling is fake thing, um, c- comes, comes in like as to why that's not completely like. All it's the not way even right. it's true. Not like no. it's such a weird thing. But but like winning a championship belt, even though oh they already knew who was going to win beforehand or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like if no. you win a championship belt, much like you just said, it's like winning an Oscar. It's like you know it, it it's this it's this huge huge momentous thing. So you're still like winning in real life if you win a belt. Absolutely. It's not even though it's like semi scripted and whatnot. You know. Yeah, and you know of of course it, you know of course it is, but. What's not fake about professional wrestling is the physical pain that they go through. I got oh an interview uh, Sean Waltman, aka X Pac, and you know he was telling me that like uh, not he wasn't quite as uh, he wasn't quite he wasn't taking as much physical punishment as mankind, but he was just like yeah, my whole thing was people knew they could beat the living hell out of me, and then I'd still come back and wrestle the next day. So it is uh, it's so physically real when it comes to the pain, of course, because of course. in a in an era where like people like the Undertaker and like Shawn Michaels and you know I'm, I'll say Hulk. Hogan and all these guys uh, are these superhuman gods. The only thing that could like threaten them, the only thing that could inspire like fear in the audience is this man, you know, this, this thing that won't fall down. Yeah, yeah man. This I mean, thing that can take the best shots and still be left standing. And, that, this, and yeah, and willing to take risks and everything and bring it back a little bit to m- mankind that he becomes known for the boiler room brawl around this This is this a time, great match. Which is, uh, t- it's the first person to escape the boiler room wins. You yeah. can use anything that's in the boiler room. That's where room. he lived at the time. Yes. yes. <laughs> he was living in there. This is which where is weird he develops the catchphrase, have a nice day. They take place in yep. different stadiums. Like, you'd have to. <laughs> well, he just goes to the boiler room. He shows up and goes to the boiler <laughs> He goes straight to the point. Just uh, fucking. He drives up in a in a car made out of wood. Yep. <laughs> Boiler room. <laughs> Where is your boiler room? <laughs> and of course, wait a minute. This is the HVAC center. <laughs> I want a boiler. And he, of course, and he creates the finishing move at this time. Uh, and again, this is pre Mister Sacco, but he still is doing the mandible claw nerve hold, which is <laughs> literally that's very funny. He that's... puts his hand in your mouth, yeah. and you like die from it. Essentially, I mean, if someone pinches like the inside of your gums, like right where your like front true. teeth are, that hurts like hell. But you know, he was he was a little, and of course, he did the double arm DDT. That was all 
also a strong finisher of his. But he, because he wasn't the most strong person, he didn't spend too much time in the gym, he did have to be creative with his finisher. And the Mandible Claw, he sold it, and whoever he was giving it to always sold it, and JR sold it. Yeah. Uh, Vince, would, I mean, it was such a funny finisher, but it worked. Yeah, it, it works. Worked. totally it, worked. Just, it's a gift as a wrestler to have like a move that the audience believes that doesn't involve like physically destroying your organs. Yeah. So he does the Boiler Room Brawl with Undertaker. You remember this match? Dude, fluorescent bulbs were used. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it was extremely uh, violent, especially this is when the WWF, kind of going from uh, more of a family programming PG to PG-13, at this point it was going to become pretty much hard R-rated. Yeah. And the Boiler Room match was one of the first to sort of be like, yo, we're changing, and this is why we're better than WCW. And and become almost becoming more like ECW. And, 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 yeah. and just taking risks. And one of my favorite things is, Mankind and Mick Foley, they've been playing the heel up to this point, right? And um, so he starts to – so JR, who we mentioned earlier, Jim Ross, does a series of interviews with Mick Foley at the time. These were huge. That will endear him to the audience. And I listened to some of these again recently, and I love this because this is exactly what I mean. This is the perfect example of, like, doing really weird stuff. They played, like, sentimental music. Mankind just starts to talk about how the children threw worms at him yeah. when he was a kid. Uh, Mary, I'm just gonna, Mary. Can you please play the uh, the clip of Mick Foley talking about his uh, mankind, rather talking about his upbringing? That was his decision. He didn't. He wanted still to be mankind telling these stories, not Mick Foley. Yeah. For lack of a better word, they would gang up on me because I was different, because I acted different, looked different. They were throwing worms at me, Jimmy. Little wriggly worms. They were throwing at me bending down in athletic class doing my hurdler stretch and there was a bombardment of worms being thrown at me so what do you do to retaliate you throw the worm back at seven or eight people it's not the fact they were hurting me they were wounding my pride they were looking at me like i was garbage so i picked up the largest specimen jimmy and i sucked it down to show them that their attempts to hurt my pride would not be successful I thought, Jimmy, that I'd shown them. But then, sure enough, the story became exaggerated as everything in life does, and it no longer became, well, Mickey Foley ate one worm because some kids were picking on him. It became Mickey Foley eats a plate full of worms every day. Do you think I got many dates after that, Jimmy? Probably not. Do you think girls wanted to kiss a boy who had worms on his breath? I'm a good kisser, but I never got the chance to show it. What am I going to do, practice on myself, Jimmy? I never had the chance to show the world that I could love and could be loved. Because they ruled me out because I had a strange appetite for strange things. So, anyways, uh, I just thought, I think that's... Those are amazing interviews. And before that, it was almost like that Black Sabbath song, Iron Man. Like, can he speak? Is he super (laughs) dumb? Is he alive? You know, like, inside his head. Because he would just come to the ring. His music was very cryptic, very dark. Really, it starts pulling his hair out immediately. Every time, he just, he walks out kind of, you know, he kind of sideways. His walk was very unique. So bizarre. It totally leaned into his character. And then he would sit in the corner and just rip his hair out before each match. And he had a little, like, window pane uh, with the light 
lighting that they set up. It was fascinating. Was he still wearing that weird brown suit with like the onk symbols on the back? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, what, he was still doing all that. And through these interviews that he did with this like fucking music, it looked like he was on Barbara Walters yeah, or something. And, and he became a face through this. Even this bizarre fucking weird leather face clad character becomes yeah. uh, a face instead of a heel. And for uh, the people that were reading, like, um, you know, uh, the wrestling magazines and stuff like I was, we had sort of heard about Mick Foley through the Japanese death matches and stuff like that. So for, for fans in the know, uh, the smarts. Yes, Mick was really already like a legend in our mind. As soon as Mankind came out for the WWF, it was like, oh, that's that one dude who yeah. like burns himself alive. This should be interesting. And you know it was that guy because he has huge, very notable scars all over his body from the, the Terry Funk death. And the mask. mask covers up the ear, right? The yeah. mask covered up the ear, yeah. So we've met Cactus Jack, we've met Mankind, but we have not yet met Dude Love. His, Wait, uh, is this entrance- before or after the Poke of Doom? What's the poke? The poke of doom. I don't know that. That'll one. put butts in the seats. The WCW Monday Night Wars, where they like were. It was. I'm, I'm sorry. My uh, my notes are all jumbled up. This because, is kind of around that time. I think I know what you're referring to. So I mean, you're talking about Nitro versus Raw. It was Nitro. Ver- this was the well, Monday yeah. Night Wars. Uh, Nitro and Raw were both competing to be the dominant ratings king. Yeah. WCW and, was winning for a for a really yes, good well, run. And w- I was watching boring ass Goldberg. Oh, uh, dude, do I his hated thing. WCW. But the thing that they were doing, Bischoff. A re- honestly, he was a real schmuck. Uh, Vince McMahon has a funny quote where it's like. Uh, Ted Turner is in the television business. I'm in the wrestling business. And uh, WCW just started working their athletes way, way too hard. And the storylines completely fell apart with all the NWO. But Bischoff at this time did a thing which is completely out of line. They would tell us who won the WWF on Monday Night Raw. They'd be like, oh, don't even bother watching that. XYZ wins the match tonight. This is that match. And Vince was absolutely livid. But in the, in the spirit of competition, it did force Raw to go live. So it did kind of make Raw a better product. So and while it was pre-taped, yeah. uh, this was Mankind was going to beat, I believe, The Rock and get the championship belt. He was going to lose it 12 days later at a pay-per-view, but that right. you know that's how wrestling still works. So they're like, oh, he just says it on WCW. He says, says like, on air, Mankind's oh, by the way, win. Uh, you know, Mick Foley, a guy who worked for our promotion, is going to win their championship in like a couple of minutes, so you don't even need to bother. And, oh. for, and WCW... Like that particular show had been kind of corny, had been kind of hammy. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone jumped. Everyone jumped. Yeah, to it's watch. a big mistake when you're a jackass like <laughs> you that. You don't yeah. want to advertise no, your competitor's fucking show, especially that did. because Mick was so over, and, and The Rock was just getting there. Yeah, uh, obviously over as well. I mean, but uh, yeah, of course, I'm, of course, I'm going to watch that match. Yeah. <laughs> So so how 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 does mankind and Mick Foley get to do love? Well, Stone Cold and his tag team partner Shawn Michaels win the tag team championship, but Shawn Michaels is injured and cannot continue. So Foley tries to take his place. Stone Cold says something like he doesn't want nothing to do with a freak. So then halfway through the next tag team match in which Stone Cold elects to wrestle solo against an uh, against a tag team duo. It was Foley... Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. Okay, got, okay, cool. Yeah, I did put that down fully debuts a new persona known as dude love who helped stone cold steve austin take the victory becoming the new tag team champions this may be the moment that i first saw mcfoley on tv and i remember it being one of these situations where i was like watching nitro or something and i was like i wonder what they're doing over there on wwf and i switched the channels to wwf i like caught it randomly right as dude love was like making his first appearance and 
I, so funny. I, I I wish I had understood how great it was at the time, but I just like I saw this like dumpy guy wearing like tie dye and like sunglasses, like trying to be all cool. Oh, it was so funny. Coming well, in is dude love it. I just started laughing my ass His off. intro video was hilarious. Where he's just flying through things, <laughs> over things. I mean, it's amazing. the music is actually great. His intro music is very catchy. Yeah. Uh, yes. To add to the awkward energy, like he physically can't keep the John Lennon glasses on his face because he's missing his fucking ear. Because <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, oh man! I just want to make Dude one love. minor correction. Uh-huh. Dude Love was not a new character. Dude right. Love it, it, was the original around. like persona that right. Mick Foley adopted, even as a teenager. Right, right, right. That was right. the one where he jumps off the roof, puts his hands up like Jimmy Snuka, mm. jumps onto the uh, the mattresses. And the what makes what makes Dude Love so funny to me, and what kind of adds to the charm of Mick Foley, is that he's what a teenage, like an awkward teenager in the seventies would think. Yeah. a cool guy was. And yeah, he's exactly. Just like, hey, Steve O, you're a real groovy dude. And it was, oh, it was amazing. Stone Cold looked at him like, what the hell? It's so and they went good. on to be a great tag team. He yeah, would play. Stone Cold was so good at playing like amazing. the straight man, and 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 then switching to the ridiculous comedy relief. Like same with Rock. Like, as I was watching one of the best, uh, the highest rated things uh, there is, which will happen much later. But yeah. uh, when The Rock, uh, the This Is Your Life with The Rock, where oh, mankind yeah. brings. That's actually like, the highest rated wrestling that's thing, hilarious. apparently. And I rewatched it earlier. And it's just mankind, like, torturing The Rock with a, 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 a faux episode of This Is Your Life, like, bringing out his old English teacher and his, like, high school girlfriend. God, was so, he was so funny. And The Rock just sits there and just kind of plays it so well, like, plays oh, that yeah. straight man character. They had such a good chemistry like he did so well with people who were willing like Undertaker too when you just have I mean that's the definition of comic relief and straight man right when you have somebody who's so serious so self-serious yeah. along next to somebody who's just ridiculous like mankind it would just be so great and so funny and entertaining and going back to backyard wrestling when I almost paralyzed my friend with the DDT <laughs> uh, little side note Owen Hart obviously R.I.P. Uh, that was a horrible tragedy. Yeah. Fell from the ceiling. Vince McMahon probably should have gotten union workers or something like mm. that to uh, make that a little bit of a safer descent. Absolutely. But he almost paralyzed uh, Stone Cold, gave him a pile driver. Uh, this was for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, Stone Cold could barely move, rolls him up. It's a total hacky finish. It looks horrible. But uh, And then, of course, Stone Cold was basically injured for many, many years. Or not many years, but a long time. He really worked on his mic skills from DC. So he was able to really pull off his character and advance it that way. But on a sad note, uh, he never apologized mm. to Stone Cold. And Stone Cold never really liked that about him. Huh. Because uh, you would think if you almost paralyzed someone, you should say, I'm sorry. Oh, and beyond <laughs> the mat, they seem so friendly. Yeah. So uh, one, one of the more memorable vignettes, by the way, just uh, before we get into the... Hell in a Cell match. There's going to be a lot of a lot of chitter chatter about that. But we, uh, uh, one of the more memorable vignettes he did was a match against Hunter Hearst Helmsley, which I think we may have mentioned earlier, in which Dude Love and Mankind discuss with each other who should wrestle in the upcoming match. So it was literally yeah. a full vignette where Mankind, where Mick Foley rather, is playing both Mankind and Dude Love talking to each other. I mean, this so is the great. kind. This is so good. And and. Maybe if you're unfamiliar with wrestling, you just got to know, this is, like, so much better than most of the promotional stuff that you generally see with wrestlers. You know, it's kind of hard because you've got these, like, kind of meat-headed dudes, big, strong muscles. They got to be very technically skilled in the ring and then also have that charisma and pizzazz. And that's such a hard thing to find. And that's why this stuff that Mick Foley's doing is so special. Yeah, I always say that uh, professional wrestlers are just theater nerds who work out. 
and uh, can take a lot more real punishment. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so You haven't seen punishment until you've been to Summerstock, my friend. That's true. <laughs> so this is all leading up to uh, King of the Ring pay-per-view on June 28th, 1998. Burn it in your brains, people. Uh-oh. Mick Foley is Arena. 33 at this time. Wow, really? He's been through all of this, and he is 33. Wow. It's at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. Um, it was also a kind of a symbolic uh, match location-wise for Foley as it took place not far from where he was training with Dominic DiNucci's wrestling school back in the day. Uh, before the match, Mick Foley and Terry Funk are having a discussion about how are they going to top the last Hell in a Cell pay-per-view match in which The Undertaker backdrop slammed Shawn Michaels onto the chain link ceiling of the cage. It was a big moment. Yeah. Hell in a Cell is essentially it's like a 20-foot high cage. Steel cage match. Steel cage match. But yeah, it was very unique. No one ever saw it before. That was, this is only the second time ever. Yeah, gotcha. Oh, okay, yeah. really? Yeah, oh yeah. It was oh, wow. brand new, man. This is when, again, WWF was like desperate. And yeah. they're like, what can we do? Funk said to Mick, laughing, maybe you should let him throw you off the top of the cage. And then, yeah, Mick Foley shot back. Then I could climb back up and he could throw me off again. Man, that was a good one. And we were having a good time thinking completely ludicrous things to do inside, outside, on top of the cage. After a while, I got serious. And I said quietly to Terry, I think I can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, this is amazing. So Foley goes to Undertaker with his plan, and Mick says, uh, or Foley says, uh, or I'm sorry, the Undertaker asks Foley, Mick, do you want to die? And then Foley says about uh, his interaction with Vince McMahon uh, beforehand, he said, I told the two biggest lies of my life. First, when I reported that I had already been on top of the cell during the day and felt completely comfortable there. And then when I managed to convince Mr. McMahon that the landing would be just like the landing for an elbow from a similar height. I really thought I could do it and convince the powers that be that I was confident and comfortable, which I was until I actually got on top of it. And then I became neither in a hurry. And so he says yep. essentially like if he had gone up onto the top of the cage to check it out during the day, he probably would have decided not to actually do it. Well, when they were constructing the cage, it wasn't really in their minds that anyone was going to be on top of it. So if you're watching that match, you see them, they fall through constantly. I read somewhere actually that um, the prop maker designed it so that it would start like falling like that like the that it would start breaking down okay. but just not that it would actually break through right Spo spoiler alert but but i <laughs> yeah and so he was trying to make it look like ooh, so scary the cage is falling apart but then Brutal. uh yeah yeah but not at, to, to actually make it the whole the whole thing collapse through um i mean there mick mick was probably 280 pounds undertaker probably 320 at this yeah. time that's a hell of a lot of meat on top of that 600 thing. pounds of man meat yeah, yeah. It's a lot, it, and it and it looks it too. They also look like the name of my uh, ska band when I was in high school. <laughs> Six hundred pounds of man meat. I'd listen to that. So the match starts out famously with mankind and Undertaker meeting at the top of the steel cage. They uh, they climb up it very very quickly. By the way, mankind gets thrown from the top at a height of around 16 to 22 feet, varying if you include the angle of the fall, and sends him crashing into the Spanish announce table. By the way, I'm very sad that gimmick is gone. I get it. Maybe it's like racist or something, but I really thought it was funny that the no, Spanish just, announce table always got destroyed <laughs> at every single wrestling event. No, well, now they have like the Germans down there, too. They, they are, they're smashing a lot they're of tables still. It's all good. It was just hilarious because the Mexican announcers would always be like, oh, 
on it. Always they were freak the, out honestly, and, the Mexican announcers were uh, they were unbelievable. They were awesome. so into it. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, Jim Ross famously says after that, "Good God Almighty! Good God Almighty! They killed him." Oh, you know what? Fuck it. Actually, Mary, can you please play the clip of the moment <laughs> that mankind is thrown off of the steel cage by the Undertaker? He's fighting back that round above us, folks, and I don't walk it a damn bit. Oh my God. So that happens, by the way, at the very beginning of the this match. This is like, honestly, maybe it's two minutes in, two and a half minutes. Everyone is shocked. No one has seen anything like this before. Never. They put Mankind on a stretcher. I, I, Terry Funk, one of the first people to, to get to him. He's like there the whole time, which I thought was yeah. kind of amazing. Um, and it, it is just insane. And Foley, Foley's put into a stretcher. He's wheeled up to the top of the entrance well, and ramp. It, so he dislocated his shoulder. I believe yes. he broke a rib. Um, there's His like kidney five or was six. destroyed for months afterwards. He had pain for like yeah, but definitely he had internal organ damage. And this is again ninety seconds or so, yes. maybe a little <laughs> into, bit more into the match, into this match. So and 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 yes, at this point he definitely has the dislocated shoulder, which is what makes what happens next even more incredible. He gets up off the stretcher. But also keep in mind under this entire time, yeah, they have to lift up the cage. Taker is on top on, of it on while the they're lifting it up, and there's an interview with him. He's like, "Man, that was pretty scary." Yeah. Like, because at some point he's just like thirty feet up, and he's like, "Oh my god, it was oh my god." I it, mean, I'm a zombie wizard biker man, and I was scared. I'm, I'm horrified of heights. Even throwing some off, uh, throwing someone off uh, a height that big, that he would make said me that, that the crowd that he, he couldn't believe it. It was only twenty feet in the air, but the crowd looked like ants. He, yeah, he was, it was horrifying. I believe it. And so, so um, he gets off the stretcher. He goes back to the cage he climbs up to the top and he does it very quickly considering he has a dislocated fucking shoulder yep. during this whole time he the ceiling has now become weakened by the two of them being on it too much they 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 throw they they trade a couple of blows and he then, brought and don't forget he brought a chair up there with him yeah uh yes that's so very important is, to note as well he takes a is, chair up with him because he's a fucking psycho undertaker then choke slams mankind and to describe this move it's like you grab somebody by the throat and you pick them up that way and then you just like slam them down onto yep. the ground on their back well this makes the cage ceiling break through completely undertake undertaker or i'm sorry mankind flies to the ground onto the uh the 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 ring uh and these floor. mats mats are not comfortable. yeah they're not they're cushy this, you, you watch on tv and you think they have like bounce to them in your mind you're like oh it's like a trampoline it's when, not it when you not. rewatch that it's funny because mick says that the second one was much more painful than the first oh, one bet. and that's where now the the chair that we just mentioned this follows with it comes right down and this is where it pop, pops him in the face and this is where his tooth goes through his nose goes through his nose he dislocates his jaw and his tooth <sighs> so that if you're watching the match and I highly recommend you watch this match this is a match that I've shown you know what? to people if on if you're going through some things and you just don't need this in your life don't watch this match <laughs> I would say well it's encouraging in, call, in, in yeah, a weird way in a call weird your way. mom hug your kids do, I would, do something well, do, you can do all of this I things. would say this is like the match I show people to both get them into and 
and alienate them from <laughs> wrestling. Um, it, it is so impressive looking. Uh, so, so yeah, he's he's got a tooth in his nose. He's but he's smiling. He looks terrifying. He they, is, they keep uh, fighting. He is completely unconscious at this point. And this is again, medics roll in. Uh, Terry Funk he goes in to try to take a little bit of heat off of mankind because the Undertaker again is just like the mad, what the hell to do. So the Undertaker kind of jumps down. Terry Funk runs in. Terry gets, Funk says of this, watching from the back, I thought he was dead. I ran out here and looked down at him, still lying in the ring where he'd landed. His eyes weren't rolled back in his head, but they looked totally glazed over like a dead fish's eyes. Horrifying. <laughs> so Terry's in there kind of mucking it up with the taker a little bit. I think he takes a choke slam, loses his shoes, you know, really sells the hell out of it, trying to fight a little bit of time for Mick Foley at this point. And so they, they end up continuing to fight. The whole thing ends, uh, you know, and, and they, I believe they go out of the ring at one point. They come back in, and then Foley covers the ring floor with thumbtacks. Well, he goes, so when they get out of the ring, he goes, everyone's like, what the hell is he doing under, uh, under the ring? Comes up with this bag, and everyone's like, no. <laughs> there is no way. Why would you do that? And he doesn't remember any of this. Right? Yeah, he's, yeah. And he, when he starts sprinkling the thumbtacks, and there was a, <laughs> Ass load of some uh, thumbtacks. That's the that's the actual scientific measurement yeah, was, for how many thumbtacks the so crowd weird. and us gr- growing up. I remember we were just like punching each other. We were just like, <laughs> "Oh my god, are you kidding me?" This was mind mind blowing. So you stuff. saw this live? Yeah, we watched this live. That's yeah, unbelievable to me. I, I can't. I couldn't imagine. I was shown this in college, and this is like what oh brought me god. got me like kind of back into wrestling. Like I was shown that. I think Ugh. my college roommate showed it to me, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" That's when I got really and Red have a nice day and all that. I got really into him in college but he three covers the ground ch- and tax they have a couple trade-offs and then the uh taker choke slams him onto well, the thumbtacks the trade-offs finish. were him getting hit again with again. the chair in the head yes <laughs> and he just uh, there's an interview with taker too where you could tell he's just like he like he basically the person who is receiving the brunt uh punishment those are the persons who are calling uh, for that move to happen that's kind of one of the rules you know so undertaker isn't in there being like can't wait to kick the shit out of this guy mankind is basically just like hit me with the chair and he's just like what he's, oh jesus so you gotta hit him with the chair and sell and mick, mick is obviously selling right you know and, and undertaker too selling being evil and doing this when he oh probably is terrified for this man's life yes i think it's so. also very impressive they were actually very very good friends very good famously friends. after the match Mc, uh, vince mcmahon uh, says to mick foley you have no idea how much i appreciate what you have just done for this company but i never want to see anything like that again foley still somewhat dazed from the concussion he sustained turns to undertaker and asks did i use the thumbtacks <laughs> oh which was a staple of a number of foley's early matches yes 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 the undertaker looks at him and rather sternly replies Look at your arm, Mick. At which point, Foley discovers a significant number of thumbtacks. Dude, because when, when we're talking about the thumbtacks, he doesn't just like, oh, he gets he gets choke slammed on the tacks or bump does a bump. He rolls in them like he's like a pastry trying to get sugared. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing the amount of. Um, and entertainment that he gave us that night. <laughs> so, so uh, what's bizarre for people is everybody thinks that this is the match that made Mick Foley this just gigantic name in wrestling, but it's actually not true. Interestingly enough, it's not until after that that he starts to turn his mankind character into a more more of a comedic one that he began to reach great heights of popularity with fans and and especially with uh, the taking the sock off of his foot and creating a sock puppet named Mister Socko, yeah. which became an overnight 
sensation. He thought that was just going to be like a one-time it thing. It was literally a last-minute you know. thing because he asked one of the right uh, – the segment was that Vince McMahon was in the hospital and Mankind was going to annoy him. There was like a clown. There was like balloon Bed animals. pants were used. Uh, and <laughs> as a last-minute thing, he asked one of the writers like, what's something that would like really piss off Vince McMahon? And the writer just thought for a second. He was like – Bring a sock puppet. <laughs> and the, and yeah. thus, Socko was born. And uh, Jerry Lawler really had a great time pushing the Mr. Socko thing as being a dirty, smelly, sweaty, repulsive, and vile sock. He would pull it out of the front of his <laughs> out of his tights. Jerry Lawler and was so fit, much fun, man. And Socko fit perfectly with the mandible claw finisher because it adds just that little extra bit of stank on that move. I think, right. I think more than anything, now that I'm thinking about like where wrestling is, I've been going to bins to watch pay-per-views yeah. and having a great time, but also lamenting some of the old days of wrestling that I really loved and yeah. I do think that JR and Jerry the King Lawler were such huge parts of what I loved about Absolutely. wrestling they did such a good job with announcing they were funny and they were is... entertaining they were passionate yeah. go. and this is also I think uh, now I don't know if Vince was announcing during the King of the Ring but Vince was also a great ring announcer oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Vince good. was really good I loved how like horny Jerry the King Lawler was it yeah, was Vince, so funny you know I uh, can, yes yeah. what a hilarious joke <laughs> That yes. King Lawler uh, was. I miss it. I, I remember a simpler you can tell time. Sometimes, because there are some, there are some very crass, uh, hum- <laughs> crass pieces of humor there, um, and you know when Jr. is like, seriously, stop it. You have to stop it. <laughs> because JR, of course, was in charge of talent. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, but yeah, uh, Jerry yeah. Lawler really pushed At it. At the height of Mankind Mania, I'll always remember this. Uh, Mary, if you can find, I, I know there's a clip on YouTube. Uh, he's like in Chef Boyardee ravioli ads. He is like, there's toys. Oh, no, he's, huge. he's like, he's, he's a pop icon. On the plains of Africa, one would find the following. The herbivore or plant eater, the carnivore or meat eater, and the Boyardeevore known as Mankind of the WWE. Have a nice day. He's never without his overstuffed beef ravioli and his call. Mm, beefy. Unmistakable. Chef Boyardee overstuffed beef ravioli definitely feeds the need. It's the perfect ravioli for all mankind. And yeah. this is where, you know, his body had been taking such a beating. They did have to sort of, again, extrapolate on the character, extrapolate on who Mick Foley was as a person. Because he, I mean, he took a hell of a lot of well, bumps after that this still. Is a, this is now but, the I Quit match that you've already mentioned, which yes. we don't really need to keep going into, other than, like, just watch Mick Foley's family, watch the That's, I Quit match on yeah. Beyond the Mat, and just, like, realize how fucking terrifying and don't even that bring is. It, again, as I said, don't even mention it to him. He hates that match. That's his least favorite match he's ever done. 11 unprotected chair shots to the head, by the way. It's, That's it's, the the, that's the number. It's completely and utterly brutal. But uh, he is—he's now like him and the Rock are, are really charismatic and great together. I mean, the WWF is more popular than it's ever been, uh, and he's there right at the forefront of it. It's the whole Attitude Era thing, and then the Foley, uh, Mick Foley, and the Rock go from rivals to comedy duo with the Rock and Sock connection. Mm-hmm. That this is your life segment was uh, uh, was the highest ratings ever for Raw. It is just everything is uh, really on, on a higher level. He ends up feuding with Triple H, and and this is around the time when he finally this is kind of his heyday in a way this is when he finally starts like winning title belts yeah just one of the he's, major players yeah. of of the wwf he's i mean this is it he is completely over mick could do no wrong and uh yeah that was a great great time they for introduced career. the hardcore belt because mm-hmm. of yeah. him mm-hmm. uh which becomes like a fixture of that era and you know without mick foley you don't get the hardy boys you don't have the dudleys ever coming over yeah like he was 
he allowed for that style of wrestling to be okay for yeah. that network. It doesn't really exist like that anymore. No. You know, we watched the Extreme Rules match the other... Uh, and we were just like, where are these crazy rules? There wasn't we were any matches that were... It was literally the joke that we were making where it's like, the ref is going to be very strict. That's the, <laughs> but it kind of was that. It kind of was. So, I, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit this, different than it used to be. The yeah. time frame that we're talking about here, this initial run, uh, everything from his introduction to, like, the three faces of Foley, this is just 1996 to 2000. Yeah. Yeah. This this yeah. is a legendary run for it's considering the all the time. things he did in such a short amount of I time. I mean, and some would argue as I would, you know, this is probably uh, arguably the best time in wrestling in general. Yeah. I mean, that I mean, ever was. It coincides with our high school experience. Exactly. So I don't know how, like, so I'm it, not sure somebody how else would argue. Right now, there is a homeschool 12-year-old who wears nothing but jorts, <laughs> who is like, John Cena is my personal lord and savior, and wrestling has never been better. Well, also, right, exactly. I, I also want to say, having said we have covered the rock and now we've covered mcfoley i will i promise any wrestling fans out there in the future we'll cover like hogan we'll cover like old school you know the older eras of wrestling we won't just cover yeah. wrestlers from the attitude era because we were in best. high school when <laughs> the attitude era was huge it's just the greatest you know i would i would love to do like macho man rick flair i mean there's definitely like fascinating characters from other times even though mcfoley of course famously would also um uh rival up with uh rick flair which was actually a real life rivalry but then they squashed that and then they would rival in the in the show that was another big thing he's been, but this is the thing now we're kind of hitting the point he becomes the commission commissioner foley yeah. um and what i love about this he wanted this character to be a role model for nerds he was just cracking like corny jokes yeah. just being a total cornball and you just want to make uh nerds feel like you know you can also just be goofy and corny and you don't have to like pretend to be like mean and you know hard or whatever which i thought was kind of fun yeah and um he just did did little weird things he started making fun of what they call cheap pops which is when you just sort of like cheaply play to whatever uh, audience you're in front of right. he'd go uh i'm thrilled to be right here in new york and like put his <laughs> thumbs up or whatever to try yes. to just kind of make fun of people who sort of play to audiences like that he just started playing around doing a lot of different things but um eventually left the commissioner uh Role He went and did a bunch of indie things, working with old rivals such as Sabu, Terry Funk, Dusty Rhodes, and Raven, doing different, like, ref gigs and manager yeah. gigs and, like, indie shows all over right. the place at this time. Uh, and then comes back to the WWE uh, for to be a ref in Hell in the Cell between uh, a match between Triple H and Kevin Nash in 2003, um, and is there for just like a little while and before was, he moves that's into a good TNA. Match. That's a good match too. That Hell in the Cell match. Triple H is a. I mean, you know, he's did obviously you, one of the best. Now, did you follow him much in TNA wrestling? Did you follow no, TNA I didn't, wrestling? Much? Not, not too much. Not too much. This no. so he goes to TNA wrestling. Uh, I want to know more about this. I feel like I don't have a ton on this as we're sort of moving towards wrapping up on his story. But um, TNA Wrestling, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, um, which was started after WCW ended in 2001. Uh, and he did a few storylines with folks like Kevin Nash and Kurt Angle. He covers it, I believe, in his fourth book, which we'll get to the books in just a second. Um, I believe Countdown to Lockdown, if you want to read about his TNA experience more so and some of his other famous matches that he, he returned to. Um, and he goes back to the WWE in 2011. Uh, essentially, he's doing what every single wrestler, I feel like, does at the end of their career if they don't, like, die from a drug overdose or something. Just right. can't ever quite fully leave it. 
Well, he's you know still I mean? extremely successful and famous, and everyone – he's a big guy to get. Yeah. yeah, he's a huge get. And so, of course, yeah, people are offering all the time to come yeah. back, and of course you want to come back. But he gets to do some fun things. He's yeah. not always even wrestling, really. No. He definitely toned it down in a big way, especially after that um, uh, Hell in a Cell match and then that Rock, uh, especially after that and Rock. he had another very brutal Hell in a Cell match, you know, mm. where he kind of does what I think he initially promised Vince he would do. It's a, it's a shorter fall, but still very brutal. Right. And then they had the ring a little bit more set up to take that final bump when he got thrown uh, through again. Is but. that when he actually goes through the mat? Yeah, as well? so it's kind of more of a set. You know, it's more set up. Uh, and he, uh, uh, he's inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame class of 2013 by his old good friend, Terry Funk, which I think is uh, lovely. Man, it's an incredible story. It's a uh, no one. If you look at Mick, he is he's big. He's like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, so he does have some uh, body uh, when it comes to height and girth. But, man, when it comes to a person who looks like he does, if you would say who's going to be a professional wrestler, you wouldn't really pick him out of the crowd. Well, I mean, uh, that's the thing. You used to. He's like yeah. he. He was like the harkened back to the older. He harkened back to the olden times. Uh, he survived while so many other steroid like clad gods have like fallen uh, precipitously hard. Um, he was always a family man. Like he's been with the same uh, family. He's been with his wife and his kids for so long. Loves. I mean, the whole Christmas. It loves Christmas. He loves has a Christmas. Room in his house that is Christmas twenty four seven. He loves being Santa Claus. He re- his most recent book is um, uh, a book about that. Uh, oh shit! What's the name of it? I'll have to find. Uh, it's Saint Mick I from Har- uh, Yeah, Saint Mick. My journey from hardcore legend to Santa's jolly elf. He's also an incredibly charitable person. He's sponsors seven children with child fund international did a ton of make a wish events and uh, of course another thing you wouldn't think when he's you actually at uh, volunteered for rain which i don't actually I know, know I, it the full but it rape I assault it incest like. yeah yeah he well th- do you know where this came from his deep love of Tori Amos. Oh, we so didn't even mention the so Tori Amos. So he's another thing. Neil Gaiman, like Neil Gaiman's this huge love Tori it. Amos yeah. fan. Mick Foley in 1993. Mick Foley and re- uh, wrestler Max Payne were driving at night in the Deep South when Payne played Amos's album, Tori Amos's album, Little Earthquakes. He describes the opening songs as unlike anything I'd ever heard. With Winter, the song Winter being particularly striking, oh. he ends up meeting Tori Amos uh, eventually in 2008, and through her, he became involved in the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which she co-founded in 1994. In 19, uh, uh, during a 15-month period ending in uh, April 2011, Foley logged more than 550 hours talking to victims online through that service. Uh, and that same month, Foley offered to mow anyone's lawn who donated at least $5,000 to the organization and one of the ironies about him being so charitable when he was actually on the road he was one of the stingiest wrestlers around he was he was just like anything because he was sending it back to his family right, he wasn't right. making a lot of money right you know he was so, making, again that japanese death match was three hundred dollars he got t-shirt <laughs> yeah. sales he just he did maybe fine. uh but no he talks so, an inordinate amount in his book about how much he saved he was a saver dirt. yeah which is something i wish i had that i just don't <laughs> I know, know how right to do that. i just don't know how to do it um speaking of saving thank you go to patreon.com slash whisper <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you've got Have a Nice Day, which I recommend everyone read. He also wrote Foley is Good and The Real World is Faker Than Wrestling in 2001. Uh, the third autobiography wrote was Hardcore Diaries, covering his wrestling days during the mid-2000s. He has a fourth one called Countdown to Lockdown, which I mentioned about his TNA career, and then The Saint Mick. Um, he also wrote four children's books, Mick Foley's Halloween Hijinks, Mick Foley's Christmas Chaos, Tales from Rescal Lane, and A Most Miserable Christmas. 
I think one of those was fiction works, which is so oh, crazy. Yeah. He wrote two works, a coming of age tale called Teatum Brown and another work of fiction called Scooter. He's, he's an incredibly talented. He's writer. a writing machine. He's a ama- he's an amazing writer. And uh, he also uh, in his charity works, he really tries to promote children reading and learning uh, on that and like just reading as many books as they can and things like that is clear that he did that himself Jake I think that's all I have on McFoley I love McFoley can you tell I like McFoley uh honestly he has done more for wrestling just by being himself just by being this caring articulate funny sensitive man that can like go on interviews go on national tv go on to like book go into bookstores and kind of just like give a human face to this art form that so many people kind of just don't see past the veneer of it. Yeah, totally. and I think the duality of the brutality of his matches mixed combined with his true character, I mean, that's really what, uh, that, that's what sells him. It's you just know? the best. He's the best. Well, well thanks, thanks for having thank me, guys. Thank you, Ben, for doing this. This of is course. fucking phenomenal. Uh, it's very fun. Uh, well, we always end with the same stuff. If you'd like to support us more, uh, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got bonus content every single week. You can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash Ho. Jake. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, and of course uh, on Dorkly.com and the Drawfee channel on YouTube. I show up and yell things. And Ben Kissel does a little known podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. Check it out. It's a fantastic yep. podcast. That's fun. Able gets top at the other show. Yeah, that's yeah, that's more and, the one to promote. Um, well, yeah, man, they're doing good. So Fuck yeah, man. Fun. I know, right? I it's voted been, for him. It's been a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, Henry got to see Mark Calloway at San Diego Comic Con. No shit. The Undertaker, but he didn't say anything to him. I think he was. <laughs> Um, yeah, I might have. I would have been fucking terrified. He really is like a biker. Like he's a tough guy. Believe it or not. Well, Ben, I'm, I know that's shocking to hear. <laughs> ben, thank you again for doing this. We really, really do appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. Hail yourselves, everyone. Woo! Schmopulations. <laughs> the legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.